we are, is it up there? There we go. It's in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, which if you're using the Bible in the pew rack is on page 1007. So I'd invite you to open there and let's stand and hear the word of God. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can be seated as we pray. Father, there will be no work that's done, no true or important work that's done this morning apart from the work of your Spirit. So, Father, we together unite our prayers right now, asking that by your word you would speak to us today, and that we would have faith to hear and to receive, that you would be molding us and shaping us by your word. Help me, Father, minister now in Christ's name. Amen. Now this may surprise some of you who are here, but I was a skater when I was a kid. I had a Mike McGill Powell Peralta skateboard with Venture trucks and T-bone wheels. Yes, I still remember it. It may not surprise you that I was a complete poser. My ollie barely cleared an inch I was too scared to ride on my friend's half pipe, and my obsession petered out in just about a year. Now, looking back on that, I can imagine how my parents felt about things, plunking down $150 on a new skateboard, probably knowing that it would just be a fad for me. I think about that now as a parent, because when my kids spend their money or ask for a present so that I'm spending money on another toy that I know will get played with for a few days and then buried at the bottom of the toy box, I cringe. It's frustrating, but that's how kids are. They're fickle. They hear about something, for whatever reason, their friends are talking about it, they saw someone had it, they saw it in a store, and they get really excited about it. They're convinced this will change their life, 
but it changes so quickly. What was once their entire world is gone and forgotten about the next week. Kids are like that. And so are we. It's actually a characteristic of the human heart. We are fickle. So we watched some video alerting us to the horrors of the sex trade, and we resolved to take bold action to bring about its end. And then six months later, it's barely on the back of our mind. We'd signed the petition, we'd contacted our MP, and that was about it. And it's this inherent fickleness of the human heart that has had me concerned for us as a church for the past week or so. Because over the last few weeks, as we've been studying the book of Hebrews, I've sensed something profound happening in our midst. Maybe it's because it's been happening in my own heart. It's been recaptured with the goodness and importance of the gospel. What Jesus did in becoming our sacrifice hit me with unique weight. And I don't think it's just me. I've sensed it happening to us collectively as a church. I felt it as I've preached to you. I felt it as we've sung our closing song. I felt it last week as I heard Mark preach. Now, if you're wondering what I'm talking about because you haven't been with us, actually, verses 19 to 21 of our passage give a great summary of the truths that have so gripped our hearts as a congregation. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. It's, you see what it's saying? We have access to the holy places where God actually dwells, not some man-made temple that's just an approximation of God's true dwelling place, but the very heavenly abode of God. And that means that we can have fellowship with God, the one who created us, the one whose relationship we need most in order to live and thrive in this world. We have access to that God. And we have it how? Through the blood of Jesus, it says. You see, our sin had alienated us from our most crucial relationship. But Jesus dealt with our sin by paying the blood price for our sin. His body was torn for us, which became a means a curtain through which we can pass in order to be restored to our relationship with God. We deserve to die. He died for us. And so the indelible stain of our sin that Mark talked about is that grease stain on your shirt that you can't get out no matter how much you scrub. That sin 
can be cleansed. And then verse 21, now he stands as our priest interceding for us. Not with the day after day, year after year sacrifice, but with the once and for all sacrifice that proved, proved because he rose up from the dead. It's a living way. It proved that our sin has actually been dealt with. That's verses 19 to 21. That's what we've been learning. We started learning about that all the way back in chapter 8. What about you as we've been going through this series? Has God been speaking to you through these truths? Have you realized afresh all that Jesus has done for you? Has the goodness of the gospel gripped you now in deeper ways? I know for many of us that is the case. And that's why I'm concerned about our inherent fickleness. The fire of the gospel is now roaring in our heart. And I'm worried that it could flicker again. Oh, we signed our petition. We wrote our MP. And now we just go back to life as we know it. The $150 skateboard gets buried in the corner of the garage. That's my concern. And that's why this passage before us this morning is so important. Because God knows well the nature of the human heart. He knows how fickle we are. And so he tells us what fuel we need to add to this fire so that it won't flicker out, but so that it will grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And he gives us three different fuels that we need to add to the fire in order for it to continue to rage and grow stronger and stronger within us. So we see those three different fuels. One in verse 22, let us draw near. Then verse 23, let us hold fast. And then verse 24, let us consider. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. He's saying, you see it there in verse 19, since, since, since all of this is ours in light of the glorious truths we've been taking in, let's take a few steps. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. And what I want for us as a church is for us to actively take this fuel that he gives us and add it into our lives so that the gospel flame that has become so precious to us won't quickly die out. That's not just what I want. That is what God wants. That's why He's placed us here on the heels of all of that. It's why if you notice right after this, as we'll look at next week, there's these warning signs. If you don't do this, you could peter out. Be careful. I want what God is doing in us over the last few weeks to be the start of a long journey 
of the gospel becoming sweeter and bigger to us. So let's look carefully at each of these three fuels. And let us help each other put them into practice. The first bit of fuel we see in verse 22, let us draw near. The second is there in verse 23, let us hold fast. Now we're going to look at those two separately, but I just want to make a point about the two of them together for a moment because the same two commands appeared back in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Now that's significant that they appear in... I'm going to switch it so your Bible's... You're looking at me. Over here in 4, 14 to 16, and here in 10, 19 to 25, you have those same two commands. That's significant because Hebrews is really divided into three main sections. The first three plus chapters focus on digging into the Old Testament on the theme of sonship. Who is this God's son in the Old Testament? How do do we make sense of that in light of Christ? Then, from chapter 5 all the way up until the middle of chapter 10, we focus on the theme of priesthood in the Old Testament with the Melchizedek priesthood of Psalm 110 and then the tabernacle priestly system. And then... For the last about three chapters of the book of Hebrews, we focus on the idea of faith. Digging the Old Testament scriptures for faith. So those are the three main sections. So there's these two seams in a three-section book. One of the seams is 4, 14 to 16, and one of them is 10, uh, 19 to 25. These are the two seams. And so that these two commands appear in both seams is significant. So the two exhortations appear at the two seams of the book and both call us to draw near to God, hold fast our confession. So in a book written to weary Christians, I just want to highlight those. If you want to walk away with anything from Hebrews, weary Christians need to do these things in light of the great Old Testament truths, right? That's, that's kind of what we're talking about. Okay, so let's dig into that first one. Draw near. Draw near. Do you realize that's the very thing we could not do because of our sin? Our sin separated us from God. It cuts us off. It estranges us from the relationship that's most important to us. But, because of Christ and what He did, we can draw near. When you have an estranged relationship with one of your parents, and then they pass away, What does your heart so often do? Often grief is harder for those people than those who had a close relationship with their parents. Because the heart longs to draw near. It mourns that lack of closeness. It aches to be near. 
to know all the richness that could have been there from a close relationship with the one that you love so much. But with God, we can draw near because of Christ. Though once estranged, we can draw near. He who is our Creator in a way more profound than our earthly mother, He who is our Father in a way more profound than our earthly Father, we can draw near to Him. That is a glorious truth. That is kind of what we've been saying all along in looking at the atonement that Christ brought through His blood. But it's still kind of a a weird concept. How do we draw near to God? What does that look like? I'm just going to bring out four different things of what it looks like to draw near to God. It begins with opening your heart to Him. I mean, that's why it draws our attention to heart. Let us draw near with a true heart. Our heart just needs to be open to Him. And not just theoretically, but really saying, God, I, I want you near to me. I want to be near to you. But in order for it to be open, we also have to get rid of other rivals. So a man goes to a counselor complaining that he feels distant from his wife. As the counselor probes, he learns that the man dabbles in a lot of other close relationships with several other females. He also gets home from work and spends his evening watching sports and reading magazines. We all know what the counselor would recommend for that man who wants to draw near to his wife. Get rid of the rivals. You cannot draw near with a true heart as long as you have rivals. God wants to be your safety, your shelter, your peace, your fulfillment. He wants to give you meaning and significance or wants you to grasp the meaning He created you for. But if you go looking for those things in something other than God... It is hard to draw near to God. We must give those things up and give ourselves to the one true harbor, the one who can do that best, God Himself. So open your heart. Get rid of the rivals and then pray to Him. One of the best things we can do to draw near to God is just cry out to Him, to tell Him what is in our hearts and to talk to Him, to consciously lean into Him, allowing Him to be our only refuge as we cry out to Him in prayer. The more you draw near to God, the more you will find how sure and how safe and how good He is. And I want to tell you, We're not talking about some Pollyanna faith. This last week, I was able to watch Moana with the kids. It's a clever, entertaining movie. Lots of funny lines. But it treats spirituality in a very interesting way. It treats it as some quasi-true myth that helps us discover ourselves 
and our true calling. And it's easy for us to think that's what all religion is. It's just kind of a, it's a myth, but there's truth in it. It's saying true things. But that is not Christianity. We do not have some naive hope in a pseudo-myth, a noble lie that gives shape and meaning to our life. Jesus actually did live on this earth. And he actually did die. Die in our stead. That's how he explained it. That's how his followers interpreted it. And most importantly, he actually did rise from the dead. And that means that his blood actually cleansed us inside and out. Our consciences and our bodies totally clean. This is what God did. He sprinkled Our conscience is clean. Our whole selves watched so that we have access to God. It's true. And so, for those of you in this room who are weighed down by your sin, you look at your life and you're saying it's just a result of bad choices. I've done things that weren't right. And you say to yourself, I'm so weighed down in my shame. You feel like you can't even forgive yourself. You don't feel that your life is of much worth. Here is the reality. Jesus died for you. If you place your faith in Him, you're cleansed, truly cleansed, so that when God looks at you, He sees you as clean and whole. I can't believe that. You don't have to believe it about yourself. You don't have to view yourself that way. Look at God. Draw near to Him. He sees you. Yeah, broken, tattered, worn out you. He sees you as cleansed inside and out. Jesus' death and resurrection is proof that He sees you that way. And it gives us full assurance of faith. That's the phrase from our passage. Full assurance of faith. So stop trying to figure out how to see yourself right and forgive yourself and start drawing near to God because He views you rightly even if you don't. So press into Him and rest in Him. Find your shelter in Him. You know, that's the first fuel that all of us need to be doing to adding to this fire so that it keeps burning is to draw near to God. Open your heart to Him. Get rid of rivals. Cry out to Him in prayer and find your safety and shelter in Him alone. And here's what will happen. The more you do it, the more you will find Him sweet. There's an old hymn written by Louisa Stead. Listen to it. It says, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. How I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. That will be your experience as you draw near to him. Verse 23 gives us the second piece of fuel for the fire to maintain or to grow this gospel zeal within us. And it is. Hold fast. Grip 
tightly, not letting go. It says, without wavering. So we're talking about a stubborn, steadfast grip. But what is it that we're supposed to hold fast? It says, hold fast the confession of our hope. Now, the confession is just shorthand for the basic beliefs about Jesus that any true believer embraces. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The basic gospel message. Now it says the confession of our hope because the basic gospel message is one of hope. It is good news that Christ defeated sin and death. What ails this world has been addressed. And one day Christ will return and usher in His complete and perfect kingdom. And when He does, we sinners can actually be a part of it if we've trusted Christ. Now that is the basis for hope. That is the confession of our hope. And that is what we must hold fast. So how do you hold fast a confession? Do you make sure that you have a statement of faith in your bylaws? Or do you make sure when we gather on a Sunday morning we recite certain creeds that state what we believe? Those are good things to do, perhaps. But they're not going to allow us to hold fast because mainline churches have proven the ineffectiveness of those approaches. To hold fast to something We need to continually remind our hearts of the realities of it. Can I ask you something this morning? What steps are you taking to continually remind yourself of the gospel? Here's a few ways to think about it. You know how it works in your mind when you've had some sort of tense discussion or or argument You start replaying that argument over and over in your mind? Do you consciously butt the gospel into that argument? Or when there's something in the past that has happened to you that is hard, and so there's a bitterness in your heart or resentment, when you start to dwell on that, does the gospel come in and reshape that? Interrupt your bitterness. How about when you think about what you read or what you listen to or the kind of family discussions you cultivate? Are you reminding yourself of the gospel through those things? Are you helping yourself hold fast your confession of hope? To hold fast our confession, we need to be reminding ourselves, our hearts of the gospel. Now, let's say you're driving along an old country road. And you come up on a rickety old bridge that looks like it hasn't been driven across in a decade. How do you produce the faith to drive across that bridge? 
Do you close your eyes and just kind of, ah, I got to summon up enough faith. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Do you get out the car, out of the car and examine your car and make sure your car is going to be good enough to drive across that bridge? Or do you get out of the car and examine the bridge? Put your foot out on it. Give it a little bit of weight. Go stand on it. Jump on it a little bit. Okay, I think this, this bridge can hold me. And then drive across. Of course, it's the last thing. We increase our faith not by looking inward, but by looking at the object of our faith. If the object proves worthy, then our faith grows. But if the object proves unworthy, our faith diminishes. So what does verse 23 tell us? If we're to hold fast our confession of our faith without wavering, we need to look because He who promised is faithful. Why do you think the author of Hebrews has consistently gone back to the Old Testament and preached to us from it? Why is he showing us Psalm 2 and then Psalm 95 and then Psalm 110 and taking us to Jeremiah 31 and then working through the whole tabernacle sacrificial system? It's because he wants our eyes on the object of our faith. He's showing us that God is actually faithful and trustworthy because what he intended to do so clearly in the Old Testament, he actually did. Our study of the Scriptures and the God of the Scriptures actually strengthens our faith. So we do need to be reminding ourselves of the Gospel, but we also need to be fixing our eyes on the object of our faith, seeing from the Scriptures how he who promised is faithful. That's how we hold fast our confession. That's the second log we need to put on this fire continually to help it grow. Hold fast our confession. Reminding ourselves of the gospel and looking to the object of our faith. The third element we need to add to the fire is in verses 24 and 25. Draw near to God. Sorry, that's the first one. Draw near to God, hold fast our confession, and then verses 24 to 25, consider. Consider. Now, if you've been around Christian churches very long, you're familiar with verses 24 and 25. Because these are the verses that remind us of the importance of going to church. The third log we need to add to the fire to the fire of our gospel zeal is go to church which is a great third key the only problem is it's not what the text says it doesn't say the third command isn't let us go to church or not even let us not forsake meeting together it says let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works So why is it that these verses are so often shorthanded as going to church? Well, obviously it's because of verse 25, because verse 25 expands on what it means, what is a necessary part of considering how to stir up one another, and that necessary part is not neglecting to meet together, but instead encouraging one another. So we know that going to church is going to be necessary to fulfill this command. It says clearly, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. But going to church does not meet 
the full requirements of these two verses. If I said to you, I want you to get in shape, not skipping out on the gym, but exercising until you sweat through your clothes, you wouldn't be following my advice if all you did was show up at the gym and sit there. Hey, hey, I've shown up at the gym every week for five years. I'm still in no better shape, but I'll keep going. Surely it's doing me some good. We laugh, but that describes some of you here this morning. You've been coming to church regularly for a long time, but it's doing you no good because you're not working out. You're not sweating through your clothes. You're not, to quote the scriptures, considering how to stir up one another to love and good works. You're not doing the opposite of not neglecting, which is encouraging one another. I want to be direct. For many of us, these verses are calling for a massive mind shift in how we think about church. I mean, on our good days, we show up to church to get fed. We expect the pastor to give us a word of encouragement that will sustain us through our week. Now, that's a good desire. But according to the Bible, that's not what our focus should be when we go to church. According to these verses and some others that I'll reference, our focus needs to be spurring others on, encouraging them. So what does it mean? What does that mean to spur one another on and encourage one another? Hey, you look nice today. Hey, good job keeping your yard green. The author of Hebrews has just spent 10 chapters modeling for us what he means. Because remember, this was written to weary Christians, and he's writing to them so that their faith can be strengthened. How did he do it for them? To stir up and encourage begins with reminding people about Jesus and the Jesus of the scriptures. It's taking God's word and applying it to people's lives. This is what Ephesians in chapter 4 refers to as speaking the truth in love. It's what Colossians explains in chapter 3, and it says the result of it is that the word of Christ dwells richly amongst us. One of the things we talk about as a vision for our church is we don't want to be, our church is not a restaurant. Our church is more like a potluck. It's not where you come and one professional staff or a few professional staff cook up a nice meal and serve it to you. And if you like it, you put a dollar in the, or whatever you put in the offering plate. It can be more than a dollar. You put your money in the offering plate and then you come back and maybe you tell your friends it's a good restaurant. No, that's not it. It's a potluck where each of us takes time to prepare a dish to serve others so that we're all being fed. It's what we mean when we have on the front of our bulletin every member a disciple maker. We come here on a Sunday to help each other grow. And here's the beautiful irony as the scriptures tease out this theme. When we give ourselves to helping others grow, 
is when we grow the most. This kind of thing doesn't come easy. That's why the command is consider. The command isn't even, but let us encourage one another. Let us stir one another up. No, it's let us consider. How? Consider means give careful thought to. It requires consideration. If we've not been prayerfully studying and considering God's word for ourselves throughout the week, we'll never be able to use it to speak into other people's lives. If you come here on Sunday having failed to consider how to stir up one another, you're going to find it difficult to do so. Church should not look like a bunch of Christians sitting around together talking about weather, sports, and the latest movie, only to be interrupted by an extended sermon from the one guy who does all the encouraging and expositing from God's Word. No, the sermon that we gather around God's Word and a sermon is designed to prime the pump so that all of us have a context for discussing and speaking God's Word into one another's lives. Every member a disciple-maker not just the pastor or the elders. Each one of us needs to be lovingly and prayerfully speaking God's truth into other people's lives. That is a mind shift, Pastor. But it sounds, sounds good, but it also sounds really intimidating. I don't know the Bible well enough to encourage people from it. I struggle even to read it for myself. Maybe that's what you're thinking. So if that's you, I just want to offer three quick words of advice. First is a two-watt light bulb on a nightlight is all you need in a dark room. It may not make everything perfectly clear, but it's clear enough to offer help. Two, make sure whatever encouragement you're giving is actually from the Bible, not some Christian cliche. And the third is get involved in one of our discipleship pathways. Out in the back, we have a station about our discipleship focus. And we have three pathways, growth groups, core prayer groups, one-to-one Bible reading, that are carefully designed to foster these kind of conversations. So if you're saying, hey, I don't know what that looks like, I don't know how to do that, it's intimidating, get involved in one of those. You can email us at discipleship at mabc.ca. I'm not saying that as a plug for some ministry initiative we have. I'm saying that because if you are feeling God's wor- from God's word that you want to start living this out and you don't know how to do it, that is something that we've designed for you to help you do it. So the fire started to burn in us. This gospel zeal starting to blaze over the last few weeks. How do we How do we help that fire get bigger and bigger instead of letting it dwindle? Draw near to God. 
means open your heart to him, get rid of the rivals, cry out to him in prayer, allow him to be your shelter. Hold fast the confession. It means remind yourself of the gospel. Fix your eyes on the object of your faith. And three, consider how to stir others up. Stop just showing up to church. Actively engage in word-centered conversations with others. God has been gracious to our church over the last month. I've been a Christian for a long time, been in a lot of churches. It's not the first time I've experienced something like this, but I will say it's not something you can expect every day. It's something special that God has chosen to do. He's seen fit to move amongst us, to open our hearts afresh to the glories of His gospel. And I don't want this to be something where it's in the rearview mirror. You've been driving through the mountains seeing all these glorious sights, and now as you come down out of the mountains, we're the scenic mountain drive is in the back, and we're back on the mundane plains of the daily grind. It's not what I want for us. It's not what God wants for us. So let's take the steps that God has given us. Steps that we need to keep the gospel sweet to us. To allow it to hold increasing sway over our hearts so that what is right now a strong fire can get bigger and bigger and grow more strong, more fierce. To change the metaphor. My heart for Maple Avenue, and I think God's heart from this passage, from the book of Hebrews, is that the gospel would so saturate us that if any one of us are just squeezed a little bit here or there, what comes out is the gospel. I commit to you to pray and labor to that end. And I'm asking you to pray and labor to that end as well. Let's pray right now. Father, we are fickle. You know our hearts. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. When I fear, my faith will fail. We got fickle hearts. Thank you that you've given us the church where we can help each other. We can help each other draw near to you. We can help each other hold fast our confession. We can be considering how to stir up one another. And all the more, as the day of Jesus' return draws near. So help us, Lord, to be this kind of people. At the end of the day, though, We cry out to you because we can't do it on our own. We need you to hold us fast, even as you call us to hold fast the confession. We need you to draw near to us, even as we draw near to you. 
So, Father, work in our midst. We've seen you doing it, not just over the last few weeks, but even over the last couple of years, and we pray that it would continue. And may this song that we sing now be the real prayer of our heart, the joy of our heart. We want to be close to you. We want to hold fast. And that means we need you to hold us fast. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.